0: Support for the California report comes from Paint Care. Now with 834 drop-off sites in California, where households and businesses can recycle their leftover paint. More at PaintCare.org. Stanford Healthcare alerting listeners to the critical blood shortage in the area. Now is the time to donate blood and make a difference. StanfordBloodCenter.org. And. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Ocean Institute. Coming this fall, the launch of research vessel Falkor II, advancing the frontiers of ocean science and exploration, on the web at schmitocean.org.
3: I also knew that you, Inspector, were born between April 20th and May 20th, a stolid, methodical, taurian, the sort who'd do just what you're doing now, without letting anything swerve you from your purpose.
4: That's After actress Hollywood. Anna Mae Wong, Hollywood's first Chinese-American movie star in the 1938 film When you, you Were Absolutely. Born.
3: A people born between May 20th and June 20th, Gemini, act differently. Look at that reporter we were talking to. He's always trying to be in two places at the same time.
4: Listen, I'm Sasha Koka, and on today's California Report Magazine, we're gonna learn more about the story of this pioneering Asian-American actress from Los Angeles. This year, she's one of five American women that the U.S. Mint is recognizing with an image on the quarter. You might have already seen the shiny coins depicting Maya Angelou and Sally Ride. Well, this fall, Anna Mae Wong's quarter will be released, making her the first Asian American to appear on U.S. Currency. Anna May Wong was born Wang Shung in Los Angeles in 1905. She was a third-generation Chinese-American, and she grew up helping out at her dad's laundromat on North Figueroa Street. When the film industry moved from New York to Hollywood, she started skipping school to visit movie sets, and she would come home and practice what she saw the actors doing. And by age 11, she came up with the stage name that she would use for the rest of her life, Anna May Wong. Joining us now to talk more about her legacy is Nancy Wong Yoon. She's a sociologist and an expert on race in Hollywood. She's also the author of Real Inequality, Hollywood Actors, and Racism. Welcome, Nancy, to the California Report. Thank you for having me. Tell us about why it's important to honor Anna Mae Wong.
1: Anna Mae Wong is a pioneer in many ways. Because of her unique status as one of the first actual Chinese ethnicity actresses to play Chinese characters, the limited roles that Asian women had at the time, the idea of the lotus blossom, the very meek, submissive, uh, docile, yet still sexualized Asian woman alongside the dragon lady, the kind of very... Barbarous and villainous, kind of seductress. She personified these stereotypes and she was bothered by them.
0: I think I'll do the Chinese poem.
1: A Chinese poem?
0: You know, the one that goes like
3: this.
4: That's a clip of Anna Mae Wong in the short film called Hollywood Parade that came out in
3: 1934.
1: When she spoke English, she actually didn't speak English with a stereotype Chinese accent. She spoke it like she would as a Chinese American who was born and raised, you know, in Los Angeles. And yet she was always also required to do specifically whatever... Chinese thing that she was supposed to represent whether it was a dance whether it's a poem or a song in this case and she would do that but then her English she would say slang stuff like righto <laughs> I'll go up and tell them do an encore and everything will be fine righto she was actually able to essentially say that she was putting on this Chineseness as an act mm. but I think that she really did leverage it in order to build a career and, and still, I think, uh, perform it with dignity.
4: One of the sexualized roles that Anna Mae Wong had to play was in the film Shanghai Express in 1932. She plays a courtesan, a kind of a well-kept mistress alongside Marlena Dietrich. And they're on this train headed for Shanghai. You're joking, aren't you? I only know the most respectable people. You see, I keep a boarding house.
3: What kind of a house did you say?
1: I think that in this clip, the idea of respectability or questioning of respectability of Anna Min Wong was about her occupation.
3: I'm sure you're a very respectable madam. I must confess, I don't quite know the standard of respectability that you demand in your boarding house, Mrs. Hagerty.
1: Whenever Anna Min Wong comes on screen, she also really commands uh, the audience attention, but also they're in China, and so I think her being a Chinese courtesan that also invokes some exotica. Besides the kind of representation, she also was severely underpaid compared to her co workers. In Daughter of the Dragon, which she was actually top billed, she only earned $6,000 compared to Warren Oland, who played her father, Fu Manchu. And
2: I always hated the name of Fu Manchu.
3: Forget that hate. I'm a woman. What is your hatred against Allah? love, against our eternal day together?
1: He earned $12,000. He only appeared in the first 23 minutes. So there was salary discrepancy. So the, the kind of inequality goes really deep here. In
4: 1935, Anna Mae Wong auditioned for the lead role in the film Adaptation of The Good Earth, which was the best-selling novel by Pearl S. Buck about rural China. But she didn't get the part. So,
1: yeah, so Louise Rayner, who was cast as the lead in The Good Earth, she is German-American, and she did an accent as she was uh, performing the supposed Chinese character in Yellow Face.
3: When I go back in that house, it will be with my son in my arms. And I'll show myself and my son to all of them.
1: The the accent actually sounds German (laughs) rather than Chinese. And it's obviously she's not Chinese, but she ended up winning Best Actress Oscar in
0: 1938. There's a woman. Not such a one as you, not as good as you.
2: But she is beautiful.
1: The fact that Anna Wong was not cast actually as the Chinese character when there are so few Chinese leads that come along and when they did, they went to white actors. It's heartbreaking for someone like Anna Wong who is just chomping at the bits to be able to display her talent in a more substantive way and possibly actually be award-worthy because she was very talented. And what's interesting is that Pearl S. Buck actually wanted Chinese actors to star in the film because she wrote the book about Chinese people, but an MGM executive supposedly told her that that would be impossible because of the American star system. So there were these institutional barriers in the minds of studio execs that Chinese people couldn't lead in a big, huge, epic studio film.
4: Anna May Wong was offered the role of the concubine, or, or the villain, in The Good Earth. In response, she refused the role, and she's quoted as saying, you're asking me, with Chinese blood, to do the only unsympathetic role in the picture, featuring an all-American, I think she meant all-white, cast, portraying Chinese characters. And after not getting the lead role in The Good Earth, Anna May Wong basically created her own opportunity to star in a film when she went to China for the first time back in 1936 and documented her travels while visiting her family. And she made that into a project, a documentary she called My China Film.
3: We go to the village and people are curious and come from miles around to see what a movie star looks like.
1: She doesn't have any... I think false humility, right? She acknowledges who she is. She was a breadwinner for her family. She sent money back and her father was probably able to return to China and, you know, have a home there because of Anna May Wong's earnings. And she just owned it. She was so actually very powerful in a time when someone like her shouldn't have had any power.
3: This is one of my favorite pictures of my father. He was so happy that day to be surrounded with his family from the West and the East. Although I've been to many, many places in the world, this first and only trip I made to China was the most meaningful.
1: She herself is trying to discover what does it mean to be Chinese American. And, you know, she's an independent filmmaker and kind of a memoirist, right, of her own life. All this is pretty revolutionary. I don't think people were doing that back then.
4: And she's so glamorous in some of those scenes. You know, she's wearing these wonderful silk outfits standing out in the rice paddies with the wind blowing. And in fact, she was, you know, really a style icon and she influenced fashion. Her hair
1: that kind of Anna Mae Wong bangs was extremely trendy in the flapper era. She wore suits and top hats. She wore traditional Chinese dresses. She even, I think, made a coat out of her father's coat. And so this kind of cross-gender dressing, both East and West, and she just made it all work. I feel like there are more photos of Anna Mae Wong in beautiful clothes than any other Asian-American woman that I've seen. In kind of the history of Hollywood cinema, all her styles are still beautiful today. I think in the Met Gala just last year, uh, Gemma Cham wore uh, a dress that was inspired by actually Daughter of the Dragon, which is interesting, right? So it's like you can take something that was once upon a time stereotyped and see it in a different light. Reappropriating it, right, for kind of a time like this, because you appreciate the fact that she existed at all, um, even though there there was definitely a lot of exoticization. She was very bold and daring in in who she was, even in the face of extreme um, constraints. Mm-hmm. What's happened before in Hollywood has an impact on how Hollywood sees um, Asian Americans and Asian actors today. I think about Scarlett Johansson in Ghosts in the Shell, which was, I think, 2016 or so, and how she actually had a hairstyle that was anime-wong-esque. I don't know if that's what they were thinking. But you're not invulnerable.
0: Maybe next time you can design me better.
1: But this idea that an Asian woman looks like this, right? And that still, we still had at that time, a white woman playing an Asian character. And the excuse again was, oh, an Asian woman can't carry a film.
4: So Nancy, what happened to Anna Wong after she appeared in those early Hollywood films?
1: I think she was only 23 when she decided to leave Hollywood for Europe and she said publicly I think I left America because I died so often (laughs) because she was tired of dying at the end of her film because she just because of the anti-miscegenation codes that were in Hollywood because you can't have interracial relationships portrayed on screen at the time and she even joked later that on her tombstone she'd say she died a thousand deaths because she died so much Um, and so she went to Europe because she was able to then would, star in films where she didn't die.
4: She was very much photographed during her time, yet so many people today don't know who she was, and she's going to be appearing on The Quarter, and you know, for those of us who still use change, she's going to be in our pockets, we're going to see her face. What do you think the significance of that is, and of the choice to include her?
1: Yeah. Oh, I'm getting emotional. I don't know why. <laughs> I guess the idea, I didn't think about that. Yeah, that people would be carrying her in their pockets. And and I think that, um, that she's on such an American symbol um, that she's considered American because I think that the way she was portrayed, she was not seen as American because they did everything they could to make her exotic and other. And she was very proud of being American. And she was also proud of, I think, specifically being Asian-American. It feels like everything that she did uh, is still modern and relevant today. She's timeless in her representation of of a Chinese-American woman.
4: Nancy Wong-Yoon is the author of Real Inequality, Hollywood Actors and Racism. She talked with us about the legacy of actress Anna Mae Wong, who is from Los Angeles and will be appearing on the U.S. Quarter. Starting this fall.
3: Mi animal favorito es un
4: gato. My kid is finally learning Spanish. Y mi color favorito. And that's exciting because it's one of their heritage languages. But it's been tough because Spanish is so gendered. Everything is masculine or feminine. And for my non binary kid, that's been kind of alienating. Luckily, Spanish is evolving. Some people are using new pronouns that are less gendered. Instead of saying él or ella, he or she, using ella. Ella is fantastic. It's really gotten me thinking a lot about how we talk about gender identity in different languages. What about in a language where the pronouns for he and she sound the same? Well, that's what this next story is about. It first aired on NPR's Code Switch, and it was produced by our former California Report intern, Izzy Bloom, and reporter Elena Neal Sachs. And there is a reference to suicide in this piece, so please... Take care when listening.
5: Emmett Shenran grew up in the U.S. and his parents grew up in China. But it wasn't until he was in his teens that he realized exactly what that might mean.
2: I was reading this thing one time about how like, immigrants are sort of stuck in the cultural values of the time period of their home country when they left. And that when they leave their home country, like, even if the home country becomes more progressive in their absence, they in the new country still think that their home country is the way that they left it.
5: Emmett's 24 years old now, and he lives in San Francisco. He was actually born in China, but his family moved to New York when he was five.
2: I remember I watched like some Chinese dramas with my mom when I was in elementary school, and a lot of our shared experiences were over food.
5: Food and TV were among the things that Emmett and his parents bonded over, but there were, and still are, a lot of reasons they don't see eye to eye. Part of the distance between them has to do with a language barrier. Emmett was so young when they moved to the U.S. and he never went to Chinese school, never got a formal Chinese language education.
2: I don't think I've ever been prepared my entire life to like give a soliloquy about my feelings in Chinese because so much of my Chinese is utility-based, like things like ordering food at a restaurant or things like, I don't know, talking about everyday practical logistics.
5: For the first several years of his life, he and his mom spent almost all of their time together.
2: We would spend every day just like watching cartoons, playing badminton outside, but then she started working. And also around that time, my first brother was born and he special needs. So I think a lot of the dynamic shifted in terms of like taking care of him.
5: And then Emmett's dad started his own law firm, and his mom, who's also a lawyer, quit her job to work there. So that meant Emmett spent even less time with his parents.
2: Even though they would go to work at, like, 9 or 10, they usually wouldn't come back till like, 8 or 9.
5: And then there's his parents' religious beliefs. That widened the distance between Emmett and his parents, too.
2: I think they were always sort of, like, like by the book for a long time. And then um, when they came to the U.S., they got into Christianity and became even more by the books.
5: Throughout middle school, they would send Emmett to summer Bible camp.
2: And there was um, someone there who identified as a girl at the time who was now non-binary. And they were like a super butch. And I remember just having this massive crush on them. But I think... They were just, like, super sure of themselves and, like, super confident in being, like, masculine. And at the time, I was like, I don't know if I want to be them or, like, date them or, I like, I don't know.
5: (laughs) It's like the quintessential queer experience, a Bible camp crush. So anyway. In high school, Emmett started to dress more masculine. He would stroll through the halls in basketball shorts and sleeveless tanks
2: athleisure, I think, was my picture of, like, what uh, masculine women should dress like.
5: During high school, he started seriously considering hormone therapy. But since he was only 17, he thought he needed his parents to sign off.
2: And I've never been good at talking to my parents about emotions and, like, this was sort of peak uh, uncomfortable conversation. So I think I was, like, literally trembling the entire time. I had pulled up the Google translation of transgender in Chinese, just so I could ground like that term in their cultural understanding of what it was.
5: As he prepared to come out to his parents, Emmett was grappling with a lot, but a particular challenge was deciding which language to use. He wanted to say everything in Chinese, his parents' native language, But he wasn't sure he could find the right words. So, ultimately, he went with English. It was a fall night during his senior year of high school when Emmett decided to have the conversation. He had been thinking about it for years. He was shaking. When he got up to go find his parents, every detail of his surroundings started coming into sharp focus.
2: And... I told them, like, I've been thinking about this for a number of years now, and I'm pretty sure I'm transgender and I want to be a man. Um, And I know that is, like, not even the language that we use to talk about it nowadays, but to just sort of put it in terms of their understanding. And for dramatic effect, I was sort of like, but I might kill myself if I don't transition. (laughs) Because I think, like, it wasn't too much of a stretch to think, like, I, my quality of life definitely would have been like severely impacted if I wasn't allowed to transition. And in that conversation with my parents, though, I definitely didn't bring up a lot of this doubt that I had because I wanted them to take me seriously and to not try to s- delay things or stand in my way.
5: Emmett still remembers vividly the way his parents responded when he told them he's trans. His mom cried. He avoided making eye contact with them.
2: My dad was making this face that he does whenever any mention of, like, un-Christian things come up. Like, he would always make this face when I read, like, the Harry Potter books, even. He was like, it's witchcraft and sorcery and all the satanic things that, like, the Bible says to not engage in.
5: So it didn't go great, but over time, his parents mellowed out. Mm, sort of. Instead of tears and furrowed brows, Emmett got used to just not knowing what his parents were thinking when it came to his gender.
2: I've honestly never gone in depth with like explaining why I think I'm trans beyond that initial coming out talk because I don't really have the words for it. I feel like I could explain it in English, but I don't want to because I don't think they would pick up on, like, all the nuance of what I'm saying because most of what they use English for is, like, the workplace.
5: About a year after that first conversation with his parents, Emmett was still nervous about how they'd identify him in public. When it came time to move into his dorm room at Yale, he tried to keep them from meeting people. He was afraid they'd misgender him.
2: I remember before move-in day, in my head, I was like, if they do slip up and call me she, and someone asks about it, I'll just be like, they're just bad at English. And I was like, I I know I'd be sort of problematically throwing them under the bus as immigrants, but it's life or death here.
5: (laughs) It's been six years since college move-in day. Emmett's now a product manager, and a lot has changed. But he still sits with one question. Do his parents still view him as their daughter? When they talk about him in Chinese, since the pronouns for he and she sound the same, he can't tell if they're misgendering him. And in English, they misgender him all the time. But is that because English isn't their first language? Or is it because they don't see him as their son? I know last time we talked, you were like, yeah, you guys can talk to my mom. I don't want to talk to my mom. Is that still... Yeah, that's much?
2: still yeah, the case.
5: Cool. Okay. So, we called up Emmett's mom, Yanfei Ran. During our conversation with her, she would go back and forth between using he, him, and she, her pronouns to refer to Emmett. And when we asked her about that, Yanfei said she mostly mixes up Emmett's pronouns because of those linguistic differences between Chinese and English.
3: Uh, yeah, I think the language—it's Chinese, just like the Japanese. So when we mention he, she, we will use ta as the same pronunciation. There's no distinction between he or she. We we just use ta.
5: But there's another reason that Yanfei isn't completely comfortable with Emmett's transition.
3: And your parents always want you to be healthy,
5: happy. Emmett told us that he suspected his physical health was one of his mom's biggest fears about him transitioning, that she was hyper-focused on the possible side effects from hormone therapy and surgery.
3: I think the health is the most uh, concern for me, even now. I really think he's just like destroying himself gradually.
5: She never talked about his mental health, though. What Emmett described as the impact to his quality of life if he hadn't been able to transition.
3: However, he is my child. So even sometimes when I saw him, I still feel lost. I still feel painful in my heart. However, gradually, I think I'm gradually like accepted him as him, not her anymore. As a mother, again, it just always, Want your child to be happy and to be supportive. So even we don't support her idea. However, this family is always like, just tolerate her or him and always welcome him home. And this is the home and I'm his mother forever. That's the most important thing.
5: After talking to his mom, we had one more question we wanted to ask Emmett. What would his ideal relationship with his parents look like?
2: Ideally, I think they would be like my friends in that I could confide both my triumphs and my doubts about, like, Trans related things to them because I still do think that if I voice any doubts or any sort of like negative thoughts about being trans to them, they would see it as confirmation bias of like, see, you shouldn't be trans. And so I wish ideally that I would be able to have this like multifaceted relationship about being trans with them without them taking it as like evidence of their beliefs being supported. I think I'm at a point in my life where I, like, all of society basically sees me as my gender. And so it doesn't really matter to me if they misgender me in their heads as long as I don't feel like the ramifications of that in our interactions. And so when my mom does things like that, it's sort of like a cherry on top in terms of like her affirming my gender. But I don't, need her to when I'm home.
4: That story originally aired on NPR's Code Switch. Elena Neal Sachs co-reported it with The California Report's former intern, Izzy Bloom. It was originally edited by Shireen Marisol Maraci and Ethan Tovin Lindsay. Thanks also to Erica Aguilar, Anna Sussman, Corey Suzuki, Grace Lynn West, Sophie Codner, and the UC Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism. The California Report Magazine is a production of KQED Public Radio. Victoria Mauleon is our senior editor, Susie Racho is our director, and Brendan Willard is our engineer. Our team also includes Stephen Rascón and Jessica Carissa. I'm Sasha Coca. This is The California Report Magazine, your state, your
0: stories. Support for The California Report comes from Stanford HealthCare, where their greatest reward is a healthy patient. The Wesley Foundation, recognizing young social entrepreneurs through the Wesley Prize for Young Innovators of California. Information about how to apply is available at wesley.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Ocean Institute. Coming this fall, the launch of research vessel falcor II, advancing the frontiers of ocean science and exploration, on the web at SchmidtOcean.org.